please to open your Bibles to the epistle of 1 John chapter 4. Uh, this evening we're starting a new section in this epistle, and we're ready now for verses 7 through 12. And so I'd like to read these with you in order that we can get into our discussion tonight of these verses. And these will take us, uh, looks like about three weeks to get through these, these few verses here. Verse number 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so love us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. We've just finished a very important part of these scriptures in the first six verses. And there's a warning there about false prophets and how they can be identified. And in that section, we learn that what a person teaches about Christ, what he believes about Christ, and what he believes about the authority of the scriptures are the important factors about whether he actually knows Christ. A doctrinal position that acknowledges everything that the apostles taught concerning Christ and and concerning the Bible, and a doctrinal position that says that you believe that the apostles were sent from God and that you believe that they have God's word is one that puts you well on the way to um, really for people to know that you're a teacher that that does come from God. The Apostle John said there in the end of the sixth verse that hereby know we the spirit of truth and spirit of error. And he said that after talking about what the uh, apostles taught, that those who hear them are actually hearing the words of God. And so that's a distinguishing characteristic between a true teacher of God's word and one of the... uh, preachers who teaches demonic doctrine. It's what he believes about Christ and what he believes about the Bible. Now we start here with a new section tonight and we read just six words in this seventh verse, beloved let us love one another and we realize that we haven't actually arrived at anything that's new to us at all. This is one of John's recycling themes. He's consistently dealt with issues concerning doctrine and obedience and love all throughout these four chapters in this epistle. And each of those themes is a marker for true Christians. Each of them works in conjunction with each other. Uh, Those three things, doctrine and obedience and love, prove a person's profession of faith. And those three issues are almost impossible to separate. They are dependent upon each other. And yet if we were to ask which one of those is most important or is one of those more important than any of the others, is there one of those that is more vital to Christianity than the others, then I think that we would have to say love is the one that trumps all. Now let me explain to you why I say that. You can be very academic about your study of Bible doctrines. Uh, There are people who attend Bible colleges, preachers that go to seminaries, and and in the end, they come out and they know all the ins and outs of doctrine. Uh, They may know their systematic theology forwards and backwards. Their views of Scripture are good. Their views are orthodox. But what you don't see in them sometimes is the kindness and the gentleness of Christ. 
And it seems like love for other people is just not a part of their spiritual makeup. And some of you have probably seen that in some preachers. I remember when I was much younger that I knew a man who was a pastor of a church, and he was very orthodox. I mean, he towed the line on just about, I would say, probably all the doctrines that we teach in this church, that he would be in agreement with those. We used to go to his church for Bible conferences, and, and uh, so I was in that church many times. And I remember that his church had a, had a nursing home on, on the church property. And so to look at that ministry from the outside, you would have to think, well, there is a very loving and caring, uh, just a really a good ministry that shows the love of Christ. But the pastor struck me as a very bitter man. Well, the members of the church were actually afraid of him. He was very authoritative. And if you were to frame the warning that Peter gave in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, and put that on the wall, you'd put his picture underneath that warning, and you'd put a big red X through his picture because he wouldn't fit that description. Peter said, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And so this pastor was not that. I don't know what he thought about money. I don't know if he was a greedy person, but I do know this. He was a taskmaster over God's heritage. And so he was actually driving his people instead of leading them. And I'm sure that you can think of examples if you've been a Christian very long. Uh, Some pastors are like that. And some of them may not be as knowledgeable as the one that I'm talking about, but they make people think that they're knowledgeable. And what they do is they use the pulpit to bully people. And they'd never be accused of being kind and gentlemen. And many of them take pride that they're not because they believe that they're contending for truth. And the way to contend for truth is to knock anybody down who gets in your way. I mean, if there's a church member who stands in your way, you, you, just, you just bowl over them if you have to trample their spirits down. Any acceptable means is all right as long as the people follow obediently. But I think what John shows us, the kind of man that he was, he was able to teach the truth and he was able to stand for the truth without being personally hateful. And so the doctrinal position is extremely important, but you can have strong doctrinal positions and not show people the love of Christ. And then we think about obedience. That's another of John's topic, uh, topics in this epistle. Obedience, so obeying the commandments of God is an essential marker of a, of a person's faith. You cannot be a Christian unless you've surrendered yourself to the obedience of Christ. I mean, a regenerated heart is a changed heart. It's a heart that gives evidence that something has happened in your life, that you've changed from sinful ways, and now you're walking in paths of righteousness. And John hit that subject hard, starting out in the first chapter. He said in verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, that means walking not according to God's commandments, going the way that we want to go, he says we lie and do not the truth. And he came back to it in chapter 2. He says, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And we looked at that issue of obedience in relation to lordship salvation. And according to James, a person that gives no evidence of an obedient faith has a dead faith. And so it's impossible for that person to be a Christian. You can't have Christ as your Savior and not have him as your Lord because then you'd be a Christian who has a dead faith. And James says that kind of faith never saved anybody. But obedience, is that really the highest test of our discipleship? 
And I would say no, because there are many people who outwardly appear to be righteous. There are people that do good works. There are people that talk well, people that dress well, people that look the part. They might even abstain from all appearances of evil. They abide by rules. They've got all the Christian rules that they keep, and people think, well, that, that must be a Christian because just the way that they live. But you notice the way that the Pharisees kept rules, and that certainly wasn't a proof of their regeneration. So a person's doctrine, as sound as that might be, and a person's obedience, though those two things are absolutely essential, those are not the ultimate test of Christianity because those two things can be forgeries. I mean, you, you can actually fake, fake it through doctrine. I mean, you can learn it in your head. You can learn those things. And, but to have this kind of love that John describes here, there can't be any forgery in this. You can't fake this because this kind of love is impossible for unregenerate people. Love, John tells us here, is the character of God. And so I'd be very fearful if I was a pastor and stood rock solid on doctrine and yet people couldn't see Christ's love in me, and, and they couldn't feel that. And I would be a, a fearful Christian if I checked off all the rules, and yet I can't find any compassion in my heart. I can't find any forgiveness for people that have wronged me. That's not evidence of Christianity. So we come to a new section, and we've just come through that about false prophets, and we find that the theme comes back again to love. And so it's not new to us. It's a recycled theme. Only this time John comes back at it uh, with a different treatment of the subject. He's more expansive here. Now, the first time that he talked about love was in the second chapter, and then love was a matter of Christian fellowship. It was part of being the community of believers or in that community. And then when he spoke of love the second time in the third chapter, that was a matter of sonship being in the family of God. And so in 1 John 3, verse 10, he said, In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. And that means this is what makes it evident. This is how you know who's a child of God and who's of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. So there it's a matter of being a child of God, being the sonship idea. But when John comes back to love this time, it's about the evidence that God himself is in us. And the argument here is about the nature of God that's manifested in believers. And he says an unbeliever does not have God's nature. And so John builds on that theme with a greater revelation of it. Now, there's another interesting thought here, I think, and that's the magnitude of John's expression of love in these few verses. One of my uh, favorite comments that I've read in the Bible is from C.I. Schofield in the Schofield Bible when he talks about Romans chapter 8. And he has a note in which he says, If the epistle to the Romans may be likened to a great cathedral of Christian truth, then chapter 8 is the highest of the towering spires of that divine revelation. The grandeur of the theme is shown in the largeness of its references to God. The sweep of its revelation, which includes past, present, and future, from creation to eternity. The good news of its message about God's answer to sin's tyranny. Its lovely and soul-sustaining homily on suffering and its closing triumphant note on the security of the believer. And Schofield goes on with that. And I think that's really an apt description when he calls the book of Romans the cathedral of Christian truth. And then he says Romans chapter 8 is the, the highest towering spire of that cathedral. 
And whenever we think about the love of God, these verses in 1 John chapter 4 is another one of those pinnacles of Christian truth. Now, some would argue that 1 Corinthians 13 is better, where Paul speaks about love there. But I don't think there's necessarily any competition between these two passages of Scripture. I mean, John is the apostle of love. He's known as that. And he makes his grandest statement on the love of God in this section, especially in verses 9 and 10. So when I first started looking at this passage, I kind of struggled about how that I was going to present it to you. I mean, I I looked at this and I was wondering, how am I going to distill this information? How can I get this into some bullet points? And I thought, well, maybe it's just best that I talk about it. But you're used to having an outline and you're used to having blanks to fill out. And sometimes I wish that we didn't do that. I, I still would want you to take notes because I think that's very important that you do. Whether you see anything on the screen or not, take notes because that's the way that you remember. You know, I have notes in the back of some of my Bibles that go all the way back to the time when my dad was alive and he was preaching. And I can look at some of those notes and I can reconstruct his messages just by reading what's in the back of my Bible. So I think notes are very, very valuable. That helps you to remember. So we're going to do an outline. And uh, for, for the next three weeks, we're going to do an outline here. And we're, I'm just going to try to help you remember the important parts. It's all important, the important part of this scripture. Now, I want to start with the essence of God's love, the essence of God's love. And I want to say that the essence of God's love is a very theological matter. When you talk about the love of God, it is a theological matter. And the heart and the soul of that is rooted in the understanding of who God is. Understanding who God is. So we start then with the nature of God. The nature of God is love. Who is God? And in the last part of verse number 8, John says, God is love. And we have to be careful to note there that John did not say love is God. Those are two very different statements. And the second one will invariably lead you into a self-determined love, a humanistic love. It will lead you into a different, different definition of love that's not really even biblical at all. Love is God makes God a concept. It, 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 it's, it's an abstract. He's not really a being. So it's not true that love is God, but it is true that God is love. God is love is a theological statement of God's being. Now, there are two statements that John made about who God is. In chapter 1, verse number 5, he said, God is light. And then he wrote in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse number 24, God is a spirit. But this particular statement, God is love, one writer says that this is the most comprehensive and sublime of all affirmations of God's being. And it's not that God possesses the attribute of love, because it's his nature. Everything that he does, he does lovingly. And so when you think even about God judging the world, God judges the world in love. I'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later on in another message. Uh, but we would think that if a judge, judge loved people, that he, he wouldn't demand punishment, that he would excuse transgressions, that with compassion he would let the guilty go free. But that's a definition of love that's imposed by man and not by God. God is the one who defines love by his own nature. God doesn't condone sin and God doesn't excuse sin. As John Stott says, he who is love is light and fire as well. Far from condoning sin, 
His love has found a way to expose it because he is light and to consume it because he is fire without destroying the sinner, but rather saving him. So God is love. That's a very theological statement. And yet there are many people who want to do without the theology of it. And we're going to discuss the theology of it in, in a couple of weeks. And we'll, we'll discuss much more of what the theology of God's love is all about. But there are many people who think that they can approach, approach this, they can approach God without dealing with matters of justification. They don't want to talk about sanctification. They don't want to deal with God on the issue of the atonement. They don't want to learn about that. They don't want to hear about the punishment of the wicked. They don't want to hear anything about the doctrine of hell. And their story is simply this. God is love. And they think that they have the full impact of that statement if they can just go tell somebody, God loves you. But what do you mean by that? What do you mean God loves you? What is your concept of love? What are you basing that statement on that God loves you? And when you get down to it, they have a philosophical argument for it or they have somebody else's opinion about it. They have their own reasoning about it. But they don't have a theological basis for why they can say that God loves you. Now, the revelation of God that makes you say God is love, what is that that makes you say it? What do you mean by that? I mean, it's just like you hear all the time, a loving God would never do that. And you hear that when somebody says, why was there a devastating earthquake? Why was there a tsunami a few years ago that killed thousands of people? Why was there a hurricane in in New Orleans? Why, Why do children in Ethiopia starve? A God of love would not do that. I just have to ask the question, where would you get that information? I mean, where do you get the information that all of those natural disasters, so to speak, and human suffering, where do you get the information that the love of God in those things is mutually exclusive? Where, where do you get that concept? And it comes down to this. Well, that's what I think. So it must be true. Well, those things are mutually exclusive only because they don't fit your definition of love. And you also hear this in quasi-theological arguments. Uh, Dave Hunt wrote a book entitled, What Love Is This? And in that book, he argues against God choosing people for salvation and also God, Christ, dying for those that he's chosen. And so the title of his book is, What Love Is This? And he asks the question because that doesn't fit his idea of what love is. Well, who defines love? It's God who defines it. What does the scripture say? Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And when you listen to this, this, this next verse, because there are some people who take that, those last two words, in love, and say it should be combined with verse number 5. And so it would read, in love having predestinated us, under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So that theological statement frames the love of God within the context of God's own definition. And so the scriptures are a statement of fact of who God is and what God did, not what we think God is, and not what we think God should have done. And so if the scripture says that God chose us, then the answer to the question, what love is this? is that this is love according to God's definition. Now we notice in the 7th verse that John says, let us love one another for love is of God. And that tells us that the source of love is God. All love comes from God. Now that would beg a question then. 
like this. Well, is eroticism from God? If all love is from God, then what about erotic love? And the Greeks had their eros, but inter- interestingly, the, the concept of eros is not found in the Bible. That, that is an invention of sinful men, and it doesn't in any way fit the biblical definition of love. And you see how this becomes a real problem when people want to change God as love into love as God like it's a mathematical equation. A equals B, therefore B equals A. And so they come to the conclusion that all forms of, of sexual expression are equally valid because love is such a beautiful thing, you know. Well, never in that sense could we say that all love is from God. Now, the statement here in 1 John, let us love one another for love is a God of God, is a statement that's confined exclusively to the biblical definition of love. True love has its origin in God. And a person who is capable of loving another person as himself, anybody who has that capability can only have it because the Spirit of God is in him. And that's why John says, if you have that, you're born of God and you know God. But humanistic, deviant types of love are not expressions of the kind of love that we're talking about here. I mean, that is actually expression. It's not, a, it's not a selfless love. That's the worst expression of self-love. Let me give you an example. A man or a woman has an extramarital affair... Why do they do that? Well, it's not because they actually love the person that they're having an affair with. They have that affair because it satisfies them. And what they've done is they've decided to love themselves because they've abandoned the interest in the one that they promised to be with, the one they said, I'm going to love you forever. Well, you're never going to hear as a defense in divorce court, I love my wife so much that I had to leave her to go live with my girlfriend. That's not a defense that you hear in court. Now, the source of love is God, so that when you see selfless love, when you see a love that fits that mold, one that's demonstrated by God, then you know it has to have come from God. So that person must be a child of God, because only those that are of God can love in that way. Now, going back then to the premise of the lack of understanding what God's love is, then assuredly would have to say that it's John's purpose to help these people to understand who God is. And when they know who God is, then the love of God will be in them. And when the love of God is in them, they'll have love for each other because the love of God in you always produces that. It always produces love for other people. But love for God itself also comes from one source. God produces love for him himself. Going down to the 19th verse, John says, We love him because he first loved us. And when you understand that concept, it opens up the richness of verses 9 and 10. It actually provides the justification for God sending Christ into the world. And the justification for it is because this is God's being. It's his nature. It's the essence of God to love. And so God being the first cause, we can't look for any other source of love but him. Well, if the foregoing is true then a third observation has to be made, and this would be a necessary consequence of what's expressed in verse number 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God. So the third thing we would say is that the absence of love is godlessness. If love is not there, then the nature of God is not there. And so a preacher can be very orthodox, he can be very doctrinal, and yet if he's rigid and uncaring, 
he'd better take heed to himself because there could be in him an evil heart of unbelief. And that person who keeps the long list of Christian rules and they make sure that they dot every I and cross every T exactly right, and yet at the same time they show contempt for anyone that does not look just like them and is not just like them, that kind of person had better do some soul-searching. And I wonder about that. Some people that are the doctrinally orthodox and they're the sanctified police force of the church and they're the same ones that cut people in two and they gossip and they backbite and they're bitter. John says you can't be that way and be a child of God. Now another quote from John Stott would be helpful here. He says, For the loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak or to have been born of parents whom we don't in any way resemble. Love is as much a sign of Christian authenticity as is righteousness. So love is consistent with God's nature, and to be without that is to be godless. There's one ancient writer who said, the Christian practices being God. Now we have to be careful with that statement, because you might say the same thing about your boss. He practices being God. And some of you men say that about your wives, that she practices being God. But we know that's not what he meant. He meant that that kind of person practices the character of God. Well, what's that character? Well, I would think it would have to be this. It would be to love those that are unlovable. And, and we think on that, we'll think about that in, more in, in, in the last message on, on these verses but, and and, and we'll, we'll look at this. I mean, we're, God doesn't love us because we're cuddly little teddy bears. God didn't look down from heaven and say, look at them. How could you help but love them? No, God never looked at us like that. And we wouldn't be impressed with God's love if it was like that. If we deserved his love, what would be so impressive about that? See, the virtue of love is not to love the lovable. In fact, Jesus said there is no virtue in people that love the lovable. He said, for if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do you not, do not even the publicans the same? So he's telling us that heathens can love people that love them. But you listen very carefully what Jesus said just before that. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's a tall order. How are you going to love people that despise you? How how you love people that persecute you, that curse you? I have a hard time doing that. Just tonight, I left my house, pulled up to to the light. It turned green just as I was getting ready to turn right. Here comes somebody the other direction and takes my right away away from me. And so I blew my horn. Normally something I don't do. I mean, if you do that, you know, I let you go. But I blew my horn this time because I almost hit that person And I got flipped off. Well, I was angry about that. I'll be honest with you. If I pulled up beside that person, get my hand through that window, there wouldn't have been a lot of love going on, I'll promise you. But I, you know, I realized, you know, I've got to preach in a few minutes. I, you know, I've got to get that idea out of my head right quick. I'm going to be talking about love in just a few minutes. So, uh, this is a tall order. People that persecute you and curse you Do things like that. How do you do that? Well, it's impossible for you to do it, but that's the way that God loves. God loves those who desperately need it and those that are wholly undeserving of it. Now, that concept is expressed more fully in verses 9 and 10. 
But I want you to notice something about the overall tenor of what John is talking about here because, you know, we tend to think, well, he's, you know, he's dealing with lost people here. We need to love lost people, and certainly we do. But he's not talking about lost people in this verse. He's talking about people who are the children of God. He says you have to love them. So are there Christians that desperately need love and really don't deserve it? Well, in a sense, there is. There's some knuckle-headed Christians. I mean, there, there's some Christians that try your patience and they're hard to get along with. There's some that have gossiped about you and have injured you, and they don't give you any reason at all to love them. So, are you a great paragon of virtue if you love all the Christians that are in your clique? I mean, are you a great Christian because then you deserve praise because you shower gifts on people that are chummy with you? Some Christians are your enemies. At least they act that way, and, and you have to do what Christ did. You have to forgive them. You have to look past their faults because they're people who definitely need help. Now, it's a characteristic way of John to arrive at truth by going through the back door. That's what I said at the end of the message last, last week. He arrives at truth by going in the back way. When you read the Apostle Paul, very, very logical in his argument. He's going to take you up the front steps. He's going to take you step by step right up to the front porch. You're going to step over the step under the front porch. You're going to go through the front door. And Paul says, because God is this, because God is that, because God is this, this is what you do, this is what the logical conclusion of it all is. John doesn't operate that way. And you notice that when you read First John, that his customary way is to go around to the back, climb over the fence, go in the back door. But both of you get, both those ways get you into the house. And so John says things like, or goes the negative way, always the negative approach. Because you don't love people, then you're not of God. You don't really have his nature. You can't speak God's language if you don't have love. So you're godless, folks, if you don't love your hard-headed brother despite the fact that he gives you no reason at all to love him. But that's what God did. That's the way that God loves. God made a choice to love. That's what God's love is about. He made a choice to love. And that's what we have to do. No matter what people do, we have to make the choice to love them. That shows the character of God. Now let me sum up tonight's message. And I say we got a couple more to go on this subject it's not your orthodox position on Bible doctrines that make you a Christian. And if you check off all the commandments that you keep and you've got your list of rules and you can put your check mark behind each one that you did and, and, and you're a pretty good guy that way, that's not going to make you a Christian. Now, you have to have those things right. I mean, you have to obey Christ. You have to have your doctrine right or you won't be a Christian. But you're a Christian because of what John says in verse number 7. He says, you are born of God. And when you're born of God, you have his nature. The most sublime expression of God is his nature, and that's God is love. The most sublime expression of his nature, God is love. So love is a part of everything that God does. So if he's lovingly just and lovingly holy and lovingly compassionate and he loves in everything that he does then if you don't love your brother, then you couldn't possibly have anything to do with God. You couldn't be a Christian. You're not born of God. Now, let me close tonight with a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones because I think this really, really says it well. He says, John does not put this merely as an exhortation. He puts it in such a way that it becomes a desperately serious matter. And I almost tremble as I proclaim this doctrine. 
There are people who are unloving, unkind, always criticizing, whispering, backbiting, pleased when they hear something against another Christian. Oh, my heart grieves and bleeds for them as I think of them. They are pronouncing and proclaiming they are not born of God. They are outside the life of God. And I repeat, there is no hope for such people unless they repent and turn to him. They belong to the world. The murderous spirit of Cain is in them. God is love. And if I say I'm born of God and the nature of God is in me, then there must be some of this love in me. Everyone that loveth is born of God, and everyone who is born of God loves. The two statements mean the same thing. So this is proof positive, final evidence of my new birth that I'm born of God. And I think he puts it very well. You need to see the seriousness of this. I mean, how do you treat people that are unlovable? Think about it for a minute. How many enemies can you identify in the church? And how many of those same people have you gone up to and said, I'm going to forgive you for what you've done? Or I want, I want to be your friend. I, I want to love you. How many of those people have you reached out to? And you start adding those up. And, and, and if you add them up, it could turn out that you say, I've done a pretty good job at this. I must be a child of God because I'm doing my best to love my brother. I'm doing best not to have any enemies in the church and to settle all the problems that are going on. And if they want to act that way, that's them. That's not me. I'll love them anyway. And if you do that, then you've got pretty good assurance that you're a Christian. What's John trying to do? Give us assurance. How are you going to find out if you're a Christian? You do these things. If you're a person who has these qualities and characteristics, then you must be a Christian. On the other hand, if you start adding that up, what it could do is shake you up, but it could drive you straight down to your knees, realizing, I'm not really showing the love of God. Am I really a Christian? So it works both ways. John can give you assurance, or he can take it all away from you. It all depends on how you respond to what God says. So you need to take inventory. John says, he that loveth not knoweth not God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what great truths that we have here. And We have to keep this, this central focus in our minds of what you've done through sending Jesus Christ into the world to love people that are unlovable. As the scripture says, we hated you. We turned for you and all the time. We never seek you. And yet you sent Christ in love, and he saved us and changed us. Lord, if he has, that's going to be evident. I pray that every person here would take this inventory. Do I love my brother? Have I forgiven those who have wronged me? And help them to know where they truly know you. So we ask these things in your name. Bless our people in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's please stand.